0: Uh, well, we are in a series called The Meaning of the Cross, and if the series were more properly named, um, it would be called The Meanings of the Cross. Uh, meanings would be plural, because that's exactly what we're doing, is exploring all the different meanings uh, of the cross. Uh, we're we're kind of basing this series of teachings on the conviction uh, that if, in fact, uh, God in flesh, that God became flesh, dwelt among us and then died on a Roman cross, that this is an important event that deserves our attention. And in fact, that it can't just mean one thing, but it has to have this multiple layers of meaning. And so we're spending the weeks of Lent trying to seek to learn at least some of the meanings of the cross and how we can uh, think about the cross in multiple ways so our faith becomes more robust and not anemic in just having a single understanding of what took place on the cross of Christ. So our goal is to make a, uh, help us have a more robust faith through exploring the different meanings of the cross. In the first week, we looked at how the cross is the eternal point or the point of eternal forgiveness. That all sins, past and future, are, are sent in or send into uh, Jesus on the cross and then forgiven at the cross. So the cross is the eternal point or the point of eternal forgiveness forgiveness. Uh, Last week, we looked at how the cross is the enduring model of discipleship. And a big thanks to Daniel for bringing a word to us last week and leading worship, pulling double duty uh, on a single Sunday. That's a lot of work. So thank you, Daniel, for your ministry last Sunday. Uh, And then today, what I want to do is look at how the cross is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. How the cross is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. I do have a passage of scripture this morning. It will take us about three-fourths of the sermon to get there. Uh, so just as a fair warning for, for those of you who are like, he never referenced the Bible. Uh, I Trust me, it's coming, okay? Uh, so that's, that's where we're headed this morning. The pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. One of the most important questions that humanity can consider is the question, what is God like? One of the most important questions for humanity as a whole, but also for each person who calls themselves human, (laughs) right? For each person that is human, so individual, this is an individual reality as well as a collective reality. One of the most important questions we can consider is what is God like? Now, some of you are very astute listeners, and so... Uh, you'll catch on to the fact that this question is actually built on a philosophical assumption that God exists. And in fact, not everyone believes that God exists. Uh, But I want to say this morning that atheism, uh, which is the belief in no God or belief that there is not a God, atheism is a fairly new phenomenon in history. Um, In fact, most people who are atheists are not philosophical atheists. They are protest atheists. Here's what I mean by that Uh, that is to say that they don't believe in God because they reject the version of God that they were given. Not because they cannot find philosophical grounds upon which to deny the existence of God. And how many of you are thinking, man, we just jumped in to the deep end with both feet. Here we are just like talking about protest atheism and all this kind of stuff. And we're not even five seconds in. So thanks for sticking with me here. Uh, But the point I'm trying to get across is this idea that there is no God is a fairly new phenomenon in human history because it's pretty difficult to find philosophical grounds upon which to deny the existence of God. So those who are atheists are usually simply protesting or rejecting the view of God or the version of God that they were given. And so atheism is a fairly new phenomenon. Because in the ancient world, uh, everyone believed in God. Uh, Let me say that a little more accurately. Let me adjust this. In the ancient world, everyone believed in the gods, okay? Uh, And so the question, what is God or what are the gods like, was a very important question and, in fact, is a really important question. And throughout history, humanity has been seeking to answer that question. So I want you to imagine, do a thought experiment with me this morning. Imagine that there is a cavewoman who cares for a plant outside of her cave a plant or plants right and she goes to care for this plant and she knows intuitively that the life her life and the life of her family is dependent upon the well-being of that plant and the food that it provides them and so she knows in a very real tangible sense our life depends on this plant and so there's we are externally dependent upon something this plant for food but imagine the same cave woman who also seems to recognize she's very intuitive most women are (laughs) so this cave woman is very intuitive and she she recognizes that there's also a big ball of fire in the sky and she's noticed that if this big ball of fire burns too hot then the plant will wither and die but if this big ball of fire doesn't burn enough, the plant will also die. But she also notices that there is water that seems to fall from the sky. She can't explain it. She can't predict it. She doesn't know why. But yet there is, there's water that rains from the sky. And so it falls from the sky. And she knows that if there is not enough water, she's noticed that the plant dies. But she's also had experiences or heard about experiences where if there's too much water, the plant also dies. And so she comes to recognize that there is this delicate balance between the amount of water from the sky with the right amount of of heat from this ball of fire so that this plant lives, so that it can produce food, so that her family can thrive. This is why it's hard To reject the existence of God on a philosophical basis. Because even though you and I go to the grocery store for our food. I think we can recognize that there is some sense in which there are external factors. Factors outside of ourselves upon which we depend for life. Now. So this cave woman intuitively knows that her life depends on forces that are outside of her control. Now take this cave woman and fast forward a few thousand years and people have begin begin to name these different forces. There must be a being in Like larger than me, that's in charge of this big ball in the sky. There's a being in charge of the water that falls. There's a being in charge of these plants and the harvest that comes. And so, thousands of years after our cave woman, you have ancient cultures who begin to put names against these forces external to themselves. So, in ancient Mesopotamia, you have the god Utu, who is the god of the sun and divine justice and you have the god Ishtar, the goddess of beauty, sex and desire. You have the god Yam, the, who is the god of the waters, and then you have the goddess Ninkasi, the goddess of beer. <laughs> and no, I'm not making this up. And I will just put this right here and you can do with it what you want. <laughs> okay? But there was in ancient Mesopotamia a goddess Beer, and then you have in ancient Egypt you have the sun god Ra, who had the was represented with the body of a human but the head of a falcon, and then you have the ancient Babylonians who had their their god Marduk, who was the god of thunder. Then you have the ancient Greeks who have gods, Zeus is who is their god of thunder, Artemis, the goddess of hunting, and Poseidon, the god of the sea. And so throughout human history, what you have to do is you have this pantheon of gods and goddesses, and humanity begins to develop a particular way of relating to these different gods. And so they intuitively knew that if, the, if we want the God's blessing, we need to offer the gods something. And so an altar was set up on a high place and sacrifices were begin to be made to the gods. And often the sacrifices began with the grains. So they, they would make grain offerings to the gods. And so if things went well and they had plenty, then that's what you did. You thanked the gods by offering them a portion of the bounty that they had provided and you, as, a, as a way of thanking them for their blessing. But this system, this system of, of relating to the gods had an inherent problem to it, right? Because if you, if you experienced a year of blessing, and then in response to that blessing, you offered the gods an offering. But let's say the next year was you had even more. Right? You couldn't then offer the same amount as an offering to the gods that might offend them. Right? And so you had to take the, the amount of, of blessing that you received and offer them even more in the offering. But if you, after this year of plenty, if the next year you had a, year of, a, a down year, you didn't have as much, then guess what? The gods must have been angry with the amount of, of offering that you gave so even though you had a year of not much blessing, you had to offer them more so that they might be pleased with you. And so it was a system where you had to develop more and more and more. You had to give more and more. And you never knew where you stood with the gods. It was always a guessing game. And so offerings began to escalate. As you look throughout human history, offerings began to escalate in order to keep the gods happy. So they began offering animal sacrifices. They began harming themselves. And in some cultures, even offering their own children to appease or please the gods. And we have actually evidence in the scriptures of this system of relating to God because the Bible is not above the story that it tells. In fact, the Bible is deeply rooted in its own story. Are you with me? And so the difference, one of the differences that we see in the scriptures is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, gives specific instructions to, to his people, on how to make peace through these offerings. And so rather than this sort of mysterious, how much do I offer? What do I do? Out of, out of goodness and out of grace, the God Yahweh, the God of Israel says and begins to outline, this is exactly what you need in order to be at peace sometimes with one another, sometimes with God, sometimes with creation. But here you have this whole system so that you don't have to wonder where you are, but here are specific instructions that can tell you how to make peace with Yahweh. This was revolutionary. Because always, you never knew where you stood with the gods, and the gods always wanted more and more and more. But here's Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of Israel, the one true God who says, in a whole system of sacrifices, says, this is how you do it, and this is what it, how it's supposed to be done, and this is what you need in order to make peace. Well, eventually, you get to a temple system, where hundreds of thousands of people would come to the temple at Passover to offer animal sacrifices. And the altar had a—History had a, says that the altar actually had a drain, so that the blood from the animal sacrifices could drain off the altar. And there's some that say that the entire Kidron Valley would turn red from the blood that drained from the altar of the temple court. And so you have this whole system of how to be at peace with God. How to, be appe- how to appease God. And then Jesus. And then Jesus enters the temple one day. And he throws over the tables. And he drives out the money changers. And he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it. In three days now some people love to use this passage to prove that Jesus used violence when it was necessary and in fact the point of the story is the exact opposite because in our day if you want to make a revolutionary point that will change the world you post it on social media preferably in a meme right So in our world, you want to make a revolutionary point to change the world? Create a meme and post it out on social media. The world has changed. Okay? That's meant to be a little bit funny. So thank you for your chuckles. But it also hits just a little close to home, right? Like, oh, maybe this is actually how the world works. So, uh, but that's our day. But in Jesus' day, if you wanted to make a point, you did prophetic theater. You did prophetic theater. So you began or you became the message through your actions. And so Jesus's point in his prophetic temple action was that the temple system was no longer relevant or useful. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. In other words, he was introducing a new thing, a new way of relating to God, and it's going to center on him himself. And so he comes in with a bit of prophetic theater, it's critiquing the whole temple system. Let's destroy this thing and let's rebuild something new. And I'm going to do that. And so there's this sense in which this revolutionary point that Jesus is making is saying this, te- this whole system is being replaced by something new. There is a new way of relating to God. Or as DC Talk would say it, God is doing a new thing. Thank you, children of the 90s, for understanding that, right? The trouble is, is, you can't replace a system that benefits people, and lots of people were getting rich from the temple system, without getting into a bit of trouble. Uh, so you can't critique a system that benefits a whole lot of people or makes certain people rich without getting into a lot of trouble. And so an uprising comes against Jesus, they plot to kill him, and he's being arrested, And one of his one of Jesus' disciples pulls out a sword, tries to to use violence to protect Jesus. Jesus tells him, Put the sword away. Because again, remember, Jesus is coming to introduce something brand new. So if he employs violence to bring it about, it isn't something new at all. It's just something old. It's something recycled. And so, the, because the place, the altar was a place of violence, and the altar was protected and preserved through violence, so if Jesus resorts to violence, he isn't offering anything new. And so, Jesus' nonviolent resistance to a violent system was essentially Jesus asking, What is your God like? Jesus' nonviolent resistance to a violent system was essentially Jesus asking, what is your God like? Does your God require sacrifices ongoing all the time to be appeased, to make peace? Or is there something new happening? And Jesus is actually about to reveal that new thing that he's doing. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15, says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, and the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him all, and through Him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that was shed on a cross. I want to read that last little bit. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things in heaven or things on, on above, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. This comes at a time In human history, where the way in which you related to God or the gods was to go to the altar, make sacrifices, and try to be at peace. For most of the pantheon of gods, you had no idea where you ever stood. Were you ever offering enough? Were you ever enough? Were you ever giving enough? And yet, here comes Jesus, who is God in flesh. And through his blood that is shed on the cross does not require sacrifice, but becomes the sacrifice so that all things in heaven and earth might be reconciled to him. You know what reconciled means, right? To be at peace so that all things may be at peace with God. No more wondering, where are we? Where do we stand with God? God. Reconcile all things to himself. Throughout human history, humanity has not known where they stood with the gods. The system of sacrifice was at first a system to try to appease the gods so that your life went well. It then became a way to be at peace with the gods. Uh, But the author of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats doesn't change anything. Nothing actually changes. Nothing really gets down to the real thing. Up to this point in human history, you either offered sacrifices to appease the gods or you offered sacrifices to have a temporary peace or to clear your conscience. But here is the revolutionary good news offered to us in Jesus Christ, that in Christ, God has reconciled all things to himself through his blood. All right, you guys did pretty well. I was hoping for an amen and you didn't, you passed the test. Okay? That's good news, right? This is the revolutionary good news of Jesus. That in Christ, God has reconciled all things to himself through his blood. Does this mean that God is bloodthirsty? No. It means that Christ critiqued the violent system of sacrifice and put an end to it by becoming the sacrifice and then defeating death through resurrection. Amen. And while ugly on the surface, the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of God's character. What you have when you look at the cross is the... While it's ugly on the surface, it is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is and the character of God. On Good Friday, it's it's a tradition in our service to show the different artist depictions of the crucifixion throughout history. And in each of those, we look upon them as pieces, uh, as works of art, and we might even say about some of them, this is beautiful. But make no mistake, those artists who have painted those pictures are not trying to bring us to that point in history. They're not trying to record it as a journalist would. They're rather picking up, as an artist does, on this event and saying there's multiple layers of going on. And the artists intuitively are saying, although this may be ugly on the surface, it's beautiful in its meaning. So when I go to paint it, I'm going to paint it as a work of art and as something of beauty. If we were to have a journalistic photo of the, of the first Good Friday, every one of us would look upon that picture and be repulsed. And so the cross while ugly on the surface, is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. That the God who is revealed in Christ does not bear a weapon in his hands like Zeus or Ra or some of the other gods are often depicted. He does not bear weapons in his hands, but nails. And he is not surrounded by an entourage of minions but he hangs between thieves. God on the cross is not seeking to be appeased, but God on the cross is reconciling the world to himself. And so what this means for you and I is this. We don't have to question where we stand with God. Amen? We don't have to question about where we stand with God, although many still do, right? Many still wonder, is is God pleased? Is God happy? Is God angry? Is God all of these things? And yet God's posture toward us has been revealed on the cross, the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. This is what God is like, and this is God's posture toward humanity. Now, does this mean that we can do things that sometimes displease God, or go against the will of God, or frustrate the will of God? Yes, absolutely. Yes, we can do that. We have the power to make choices. We have our own free will. And sometimes we make choices that are not in line with God's will. And yet, God's posture toward us does not change. For the cross, church, is the pinnacle of divine self disclosure. And so, when we ask the most important question that humanity has to consider what is God like? God is like Jesus hanging on a cross. Ending a violent system of sacrifice by becoming the sacrifice himself. God is like Jesus hanging on a cross, offering forgiveness for the world's sin. God is like Jesus hanging on a cross, showing that he would rather die than kill his enemies. If we want to know the character of God, I submit to us this morning that we need to look no further than Jesus Christ on the cross. For this is the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. This is God's act to say, this is what I am like. And if we can learn through the eyes of faith to see past the ugliness, what we will find is the most glorious beauty of all amen let me say a word of prayer for us then i'll lead us to the lord's table today gracious god we are thankful we're thankful for your presence in this place we're thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in jesus christ on the cross we have as humanity come up with all sorts of ways to think about God. And so God, in many ways, we have recreated you, sometimes in our own image, sometimes in the ways that we want you to be, sometimes in ways that we fear you might be. But God, in this moment, Would you help us to see, to recognize not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in our experience that you have already shown yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Now what looked like weakness was actually the ultimate kind of strength. What looked like defeat was actually victory. And so God help us to live according to this, this likeness, to live with this view of who you are as it is given to us in the person of Jesus. We're thankful, Lord, for all that you've done and for these times that we can look upon the cross and discover the multiple meanings that are found there. Be with us now as we gather around the Lord's table. We pray it all in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.